Yeah, that's the problem, yeah. <laughs> uh, hello, everybody. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together and be grateful. As we are gratefully turning to God's Word, it makes all the difference uh, when we're learning that we are thankful and humble and reverent before God. And so with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can always, as your children, come to your word and by the spirit within, learn your word. As we focus and concentrate, we uh, constantly learn new things and passages that we have already known. The subject today is going to be something that all of us know, that we are forgiven by you and completely forgiven. But the ramifications of that, we know, Father, are more than we can, can possibly come to the depth of. Hence, our Lord tells us to pray every day, forgive us our debts. We know, Father, that we have debts before you. Those debts, however, are paid by the blood of Christ, by our Lord's precious sacrifice. We couldn't comprehend all that it cost him and how much pain it was, both mentally and physically. But, Father, we do know that the work is finished. And because it is finished, we are forgiven. And so, Father, thank you. We ask that through your Spirit, we would come to a deeper comprehension. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, in, uh, in, in the world, uh, we, especially in this world, in the Western world, for many hundreds of years, uh, we have had a uh, society that is based upon rights. Uh, whether they are protected or not is another issue, but uh, the rights of mankind. Uh, our Declaration of Independence states this. It's the line in the second paragraph that everybody loves. Well, not everybody. <laughs> Unfortunately, not everybody. But uh, <clears throat> to man, uh, man is God's creation. In the Declaration of Independence, it is nature's God. That's how Jefferson put it. Uh, Jefferson was a deist. He was not a Christian. Uh, but we know, of course, that that God to be Yavah Elohim, and he provided and gave man certain rights. And this was understood. It came to be understood as natural rights, the natural rights of man uh, to the rights of life, uh, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is interesting now that I say that, that our Vice President made a speech recently, and when she quoted that line, she left out life. She said that we have inalienable rights to uh, <clears throat> yeah, liberty and happiness, or the pursuit of happiness, left out life. And that's because, well, we, whatever, right? it's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, is that what, the reason why we have that, and the reason why people can live in Western societies, even though they don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, is because God has given us his laws. And those laws, you know, mankind doesn't have to accept them, but for the most part in Western society, we have. And what a lot of people don't understand is that in the modern society, we swim in the waters of Christian law. It's all around us. The rights, the, the, the laws that we have to obey, uh, that you can't steal, where does that come from? It's the Ten Commandments. In every court in this land, the Ten Commandments used to hang on the wall. They're not there anymore. But anyway, the laws are still there. And this happened hundreds of years ago in Christian Europe. Uh, they came to the thought of some really smart people that they should establish laws based on rights and, and the rights of man. And they found out that they could go to the Bible and take those laws and write their own laws from them. And that biblical perspective became the idea that every person, whether rich or poor, has rights. Right? So whether you're rich or you're poor, you have a, uh, a right to a jury of your peers. If you're dragged into court, you, know, you can't be dragged in without being charged. Your house cannot be invaded for any reason, just any reason, and so on. 
They're the rights of people. And the Magna Carta, for instance, the Declaration of Independence, state that this idea, and they state it as if it's always been true, which it actually has. Now, in our more modern times, there's a movement. And I'm getting to a point here from this, in case you're wondering. In our more modern times, there's a movement called wokeism. All right, we all know this is wokeism. Everybody knows it. It has overtaken things by uh, incredibly by a minority of people, a great minority of people. They're not even close to a majority. Yet, corporations, governments, even media and sports have adopted wokeism. Uh, hopefully it's waning, but anyway. But when you think of wokeism, wokeism is also a doctrine of human rights. But the rights in this progressive woke leftism are based on race and gender and sexual orientation. It's not every man, but it is still based on rights. And ironically, what they want to do, anarchists, many of them, that want to tear down the system that we live in that is based upon Christian laws. And in their ignorance, what they don't understand is that if they remove the foundation of Christian laws, they're going to lose the very rights that they're fighting for. Even though they're wrong, they're misguided rights, but all rights are going to be gone. If mankind is not <coughs> uh, inherently having rights, then uh, all of them will be gone. And so we see that we see this throughout history. Ignorance breeds more ignorance, and that tears peace down. The destruction of peace. Um, so Christ comes into the world and he says, you know, I'm going to fight for your rights. He didn't say that, did he? He didn't say anything like that. He didn't come into the world and say, you know what? You guys are treated unfairly here in Israel. I'm going to correct that. That's what they wanted him to do, in fact, many in Israel. They wanted him to become a king that would, you know, make the Romans do what the Jews wanted them to. In fact, kick the Romans out. But he didn't come to do that. He said strange things, like if someone slaps you on the cheek, give them the other one. Wait a minute. Does someone have the right to hit me? Uh, if someone steals from you, wait a minute. There's a, I have a right. No one gets to take my property. But he says if someone steals from you, give them something else too. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus is not the political character we hoped he would be, and he certainly wasn't. And that's because Jesus came into a world where the rights of man, based on law, were flawed. Of course they're flawed. You know, the unbelieving world grabs hold of God's laws and they build societies out of them. And the reason why is because they realized and figured out that societies won't work without these laws. If we just promote you know, I'm going to be in charge and I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to suppress the rest of you. What always happens? There's revolt and it falls apart. It takes time. Sometimes it takes a long time. But it always falls apart. And so, and also, people don't make money. People aren't happy. You know, in the movie The Matrix, it makes me think of that. Uh, if you know that movie, I've seen it like probably a hundred times. I, I, I loved it. But... Um, yeah, in the movie, the you know the machines are have made a fake world in which people live in, and kind of like a computer simulation. And they realize that if they didn't give mankind their certain freedoms, that the system always broke down. And so they had to create a system in which man could, in some way, revolt. And if he didn't, this, the the whole computer program didn't work. And it's a smart way to depict. What is the reality of mankind in, in a story like that? And that, you know, we need uh, to, you know, the, the, the rights of that, sorry, the laws that God has given man have to be in some way upheld or society falls apart. We used to call it, you know, we call it, uh, um, you know, divine establishment, the establishment of freedom, in the establishment of authority, proper authority, and, prop and property rights, and so on. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he said, 
basically, you don't have rights here anymore. If you're with me, you don't have rights here. And we question and we say, well, wait a minute. Why won't we have rights here? And the answer is, is because he says your rights are now in heaven. Uh, and, and that uh, bears above and it's far above the rights of this earth. So what are the rights of heaven? Well, actually, heaven came to earth and what he did was sacrifice himself to save souls. So he says to us, sacrifice yourself to promote the gospel because if you make everything right and protect rights on earth and people get along, make some money, have some fun, and die at a nice old age, they're still going to be judged. And nothing has been accomplished other than you have put off for a little while that which is your dire end. And every society has known this. That there's one thing that is a surety in life, right? I would say death and taxes. And the first one, the first one has always been uh, front and center in every society is death. Death is certain, right? Hence the Egyptians are burying, you know, the kings are burying themselves with their servants and all their money and food even because they want to get along in the afterworld. That didn't work out too well. And so on. And so, um, and so we find ourselves in a world where uh, we haven't asked to be here. Uh, the stage was set by God out of nothing. Right? He, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He set it. He set the stage. And then he put man on it. We didn't ask to be here. We just awakened here. And we're stuck in it. There's nothing we can do about it only other than what God can do about it. And so that's what gets us to this, uh, in a roundabout way, an introduction to what forgiveness is. Because, it, you know, if I can live a decent life, a nice life, by obeying certain laws, by, you know, just being at least intelligent enough and smart enough not to, I'm not going to invade your house or take your stuff. Uh, I'm not going to be violent towards you, and I'm going to pretty much obey the laws so I don't get thrown in prison or get fined by the government, and I'm just going to get along. And yet, my sins are still, you know, they're still on me. You know, I'm still responsible for the fact that I'm a sinner. And so peace is what, is it is offered here. It's peace between us and God for all of eternity. And, you know, what happens between now and our death, what the circumstances say, we falsely get thrown in prison, uh, we, uh, someone steals from us, and there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, most crimes go unsolved, and, and in certain cases now, especially in inner cities, they're letting the criminals go free with hardly with no bail or no consequences. They're out on the street again to commit more crimes, and we're shaking our fists at the system. And we want our rights. And God came into the world to do something more. And this, the time that we have between now, and that, that's why this is so bearing on us forgiving others, because the time that we have until now, until we leave this earth it is a time in which now we're citizens of heaven, now we're in union with Christ, now we have fa- the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as our family and the royal family as our family. We have an eternal destiny in the new Jerusalem in eternity. And, and you know the, what happens here. What is important is the salvation of souls and, and, the, and for the saved, those in the body of Christ who are saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And how do I do that? How do I, how do I get in on that game? How do I improve your learning? How do I improve your relationship with Christ? How can I do that if there's anything I can do? How do I, as, Romans, uh, sorry, as Hebrews puts it, stimulate you to love and good deeds? How do I encourage you? How do I comfort you? And how do I make sure I forgive you and my rights on earth be damned? So if I put you aside and I put the work of God aside for my rights, then I've chosen earth 
over heaven. And as the prayer says, on earth as it is in heaven. So, uh, we ha- the, the two parties have to be brought together, God and man. Not man and man. That has always been the way of most of the philosophers. Uh, you know, what, what's the, and, and we'll see that in a second. So, but, you know, what are they missing? What are the philosophers missing? What are the social scientists missing? What's the politicians missing? And it's a fundamental doctrine of the Bible. In fact, it starts, the whole Bible starts with it. Well, after creation. And that is original sin. Bum, bum, bum. Every single one of us. Uh, you know, it's, I had fun looking for pictures that showed Adam and Eve being banished from uh, eternity. Some of them are goofy cartoons. A lot of them, they're quite naked. So I decided to not put those up. Meaning Eve, you know. Adam's here pretty covered. They got their fig leaves on, so that's legit. But, you know, they were kicked out and they weren't allowed to go back in. And what was... What did God say? Cursed are you. And the ground. What is the ground? It's the land. It's the earth. Cursed is that earth because of you. Right? Is the planet going to heat up? Is the planet going to... You, you know, globe, global warming's coming at a very accelerated rate when God destroys the world with fire. That's going to be global warming. Nobody's going to stop. It ain't because of our cow farts either. <laughs> something quite different. Uh, <clears throat> but here's the issue. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. That's just how Paul puts it. Romans 5, 12 through 14. But what, Romans 12, 15 through 21. I was going to go there, but for the sake of time. We, we've been in this passage many times. I encourage you to read it again and again. But uh, Romans 12, 15 says that the last Adam took away our sin. Uh, Adam condemned us to sin. He condemned us. But Jesus Christ gave us righteousness. And how did he do that? Can God just say, all right, you know what? I feel bad for you. I mean, I'm, I'm the one who made you in the first place, right? So it's kind of my fault. I'll just give you righteousness. It can't happen that way. We find out that all are sinners and none are good in God's eyes. There are rich and poor. There are educated and uneducated. There are people who are a lot nicer than other people. There are criminals and those who would never even think of being a criminal. There are addicts and there are those who would never be addicted to anything or those who have recovered from addiction. And all of them are sinners. Every one of them destined for the lake of fire in judgment. And this is clear from the Word of God. And so we all have tendencies to different areas of sin. Hence, it offers great fodder and and fertile ground for us to judge one another. You know, if my tendency is towards more immorality, I love to judge the legalist. The legalist trends more towards morality and they love to judge the immoral. And all in between. But all of us are in Adam. And though our tendencies follow quite different types of sin, all of us are guilty. Do all sins have the same level of consequence? The answer is no. Some sins are greater and lesser in consequence. You know, if I, uh, in my heart, have a moment of bitterness towards someone, I I have sinned. If I'm angry, I have sinned. But if I've kept it to myself and no one else knew it, the ramifications of that are limited. If I release my anger and I kill somebody, the ramifications are much greater. Uh, But all of us are sinners, and that's what God reveals. So this is essentially the story of human history. Human history is an epic. And it started. It is an epic. It started with a stage in which God created the earth, made uh, the waters and the dry land and the vegetation and the fish and the animals and man. Uh, The lights in the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, the heavens. And he put man on it. 
And then he said, it is very good. And then things went awry. And from that time, of course, God knew it would all happen, that uh, the epic of human history has been wrought with sin. Right? The first children, Cain kills his brother. He commits murder. So we have to ask ourselves, wait now, so we say, wait a minute, here I am now in this epic, how many thousands of years after Adam, I don't know. But are you truly forgiven of all of your sin? All of it, every single one. What about the most heinous and evil people in history, like a Stalin or a Hitler? Those are always brought up. There are others. Those who live now, who are doing terrible things, would they be forgiven if, by, if they had faith in Christ? And all the pain and suffering that they caused for decades before, would it be forgiven? And the answer is yes. Now, interestingly, the verb forgive, which we have in our passage, forgive us our sins, uh, comes from the Greek word, aphemi is the Greek word, and it means, literally, it means to send off or to send away. It can also mean to leave or leave behind. In a legal use, or in legal use, the, now the, this is a very, this word was used since Homer, uh, you know, old, old Greek. And he used the word for, you know, things left behind or, or things sent off. You know, Homer's, you know, Odyssey is an epic. And so there's a lot of sending off and stuff like that. Afiemi was used. And it was also used in a legal sense. Uh, to send off would mean release from legal, some legal relations. So if you were released from your office, meaning you were a governor or an, uh, uh, a procurator or something, that if you, you would be afiemied from your office, if a marriage was broken up, same word was used, if you were released from an obligation. And also in Greek, it was used to be released from a debt. If you owed a debt to the state or to somebody else, if you were released from that debt, the word that we have that's translated forgive, that was used to be released from a debt. Now think about that. Jesus said, forgive us our debts. Now, what's interesting about the use of this word in the, with Greeks, they never used it in a religious sense. Release from monetary debt? Sure. Release from a marriage? Yes. Release from uh, some obligation? From prison? Yeah. They used it for that. Never. And the Greeks were very religious in their own way, pagans, but religious. They never used release in religion. And why is that? Well, we know why that is. But in the, uh, the New Testament, Afiemi is used of that uh, release from sin often. And so we would say in the New Testament, just like uh, the word agape, which means love, sacrificial love, not used much by the Greeks, is used exclusively in the New Testament. In the New Testament, brought to life on the Greek world, forgiveness and love which was not used by the Greeks in most other stuff. So, people are born into this world. They find themselves in it. They didn't ask for it. We have to try and figure it out. All of us have to try and figure it out. You know, like kids. The kids, they don't know yet. That's why they get all messed up when they become teenagers. Because finally the questions about life and purpose and who likes me and why wouldn't they like me, right? You know, at five years old, those little tykes in the back right now, they don't care too much about that. You know, they yell and scream at each other at times. I see them, like, being really mean to one another. And I'm like, wow, they're going to lose their friends. They don't. Because at that age, they don't really care. (laughs) Like, forgiveness is easy. Because what? They don't know yet. The sense of loss or, you know, the meaning of why doesn't someone like me? They don't know the meaning of, you know, why aren't I successful? What is life really about? Meaning doesn't come into things. But then as adults, meaning becomes everything. And we find out from the scripture that through the gospel and then a relationship with God, there's only one way to truly put meaning 
like a lot in your life. Every day. Even when you're like running errands. Or just going to work or working. That every day there can be great meaning in your life. You know, and meaning is what keeps us going. What happens when we have meaning and it doesn't really work out the way that we thought it would, in other words, we thought it meant something, but it didn't, we get supremely disappointed. And then we start, if that happens a few times, we start giving up on doing anything. Why bother, right? And you see, in the world, people are searching for that meaning. According to philosophers, there are different ways of trying to figure out, never mind the answers, but what are the right questions? And then search for answers. One philosopher said that the challenge to life is to achieve authenticity. And I find that interesting. It's, it's, it's a very good observation. The challenge is to achieve authenticity, which in his view meant preparing to play out one's death scene. In other words, we're all going to die. And this philosopher said, if you can die well, then you probably lived well. If you die poorly, you probably live poorly. And that brings us to that principle. Everybody trying to figure out what the questions are, what the answers are, how we should live, and so on. It's because there are consequences to life. The, the main consequence to living is dying. We're all going to die. So what has always been known to all societies and people is death. Now here's what Christianity did. It came into the world. Christianity inverted the thing that we know the most, which is death. Christianity brought resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then Paul goes on to say what? He appeared to Peter, and he writes his name as Cephas, and he appeared to 500 others. What is he saying there? Which he says there's still of those 500 that he appeared to all at one time, which, yes, Christ can do. It's a miracle, uh, just like resurrection is a miracle, that there are eyewitnesses to this. And then Paul was writing, he said those eyewitnesses are still around today. But wait a minute. What? How is that possible? Like... And, of course, we, we know it and we take it for granted, but if Christ is raised, okay, I get it. He's perfect. He died for the sins of the whole world. He's the magnanimous Son of God. But does that mean I'm going to be raised from the dead? And that's the whole chapter is about that, 1 Corinthians 15. And if you read that whole chapter, you come to the end of it and it says, it says death, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is the last thing to be defeated and we will all be raised with Christ, the first fruits. It's magnificent. He's going to make us alive. In other words, death has been inverted into life. But how? It's not, it can't happen unless your sins are forgiven. We have to understand Right? It's one thing to live and say, wow, I can't wait for eternity. Well, I have a resurrection body. Yeah, it's going to be great. But until that time, what? I am as forgiven now as I am will be then. My sin is not on me. Now, I bear the consequences of my sin? Absolutely. More sin, other, some sins have more consequences than others? Absolutely. And I'm going to jot back and forth here between the truth that comes from the Scripture that sets us free and the world that we live in that tries to explain this. Because what we just read in one sentence, which describes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is simple. It's one sentence. It's simple. It's pure. But without faith, the people running around in this world who have God's law, who have an idea of what morality is, 
They don't know the one who made the law. They're not in union with him. And so we have to the world has to explain it some way, and in comes the natural and social sciences. Natural and social sciences vie for bragging rights over which most influences the human condition. So we've heard this. What makes you what you are? Is it nature or nurture? Right? Is it your DNA or your environment? Genetic determinism or social indoctrination? Kind of the same thing. Is it your DNA or is it the society that has molded you and that's the reason you are what you are? Is it your heredity or your history? And so we like this, you know, right? Why? Because we can blame somebody. I'm a jerk because of my parents. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like this. I have no choice. I can't change. <laughs> I knew a guy. I met this guy once. He came to GBC for Grace Bible Church, the old church there back. It's still there. It's my old church. Um, and he used to always say, you know what, I have an abrasive personality. That was his thing. He'd always say, uh, you know, I have this abrasive personality. I'd always be like, and then once you got to know him, you'd be like, yeah, you're kind of hard to be around. And he would just admit it. I have, you know, that's the way I am. How about change? Right? Like, isn't that what the scripture's all about? That we're transformed by the renewing of our minds? Anyway, am I stuck this way? Can I blame my parents? Can I blame my society? Can I blame my environment, my neighborhood, my friends, my DNA? Am I hardwired by my biology? Or am I programmed by society? And even if we could, even if that was the real question, which it's not, if we could answer it, well, okay, then what happens to people's freedoms? You know, what about your self-determination? What about your choices? Can I, can I just kill somebody and say, well, I was, I was hardwired that way. Can I steal from somebody? Can I put someone down? Can I give someone unfair treatment because they're hardwired a certain way, because of their color, their race, and so on? But all of this washes away when it comes to sin. Because why? Again, we're all born in Adam. What is common about natural and social sciences is that they're all about man. They're all about us. They're anthropocentric. They're all about us. And that's why they never work. If you're trying to solve the problems of a sinful being with their own ideas that come from sinful beings, then what you have are sinners making sinful solutions to their sin. What are you going to get from that? It's just circular. It just goes around and around and around. And that's why there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. And so my point is here is that something, someone, had to come into the world and solve the sin problem. And he could come into the world, the Son of God could come into the world and talk all truth and show all the light of God and the glory of God and reveal the scriptures, if he doesn't die for our sins, we just heard a whole bunch of stuff that is miles outside of our our reach and our grasp, and we are just stuck in our sins and will be judged. And we need to be free. And that's the gospel. The gospel broke in. The opening of the gospel of John. The life of Christ became the light of the world. And the light came into the darkness. I saw this quote today um, by a Sir Roger Scruton. I, I've seen his picture. I didn't know what his name was. I mean, I, I've seen his picture before in certain things. I can't remember where, but uh, maybe most wanted poster. I don't know. But he's Sir Roger Scruton, so he's been knighted by the Queen. And he says, anybody who goes through life with open mind and open heart will encounter moments that are saturated with meaning, but whose meaning cannot be put into words. These moments are precious to us. And I put this part of the quote on the board for you. There he is, Sir Roger Scruton. 
He looks smart, doesn't he? He is. <clears throat> when they occur, it is as though on a winding, ill-lit stairway, on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch, us this, we catch sight of another and brighter world, a world which we belong to, but we cannot enter. This is a marvelous quote. And I love the image. You know, I've, I've been to Ireland a few times with my parents, and I've, I've been on winding staircases in castles. There's a few old castles that are like where, where uh, my parents live, my parents' house are. Yes, now it's my sister's house. But um, there's a castle near there where it's been totally redone and, and refurbished. And you can visit it, and you can run up this tower on these stairs really neat because the stairs are all uneven. They made them that way so the invaders come up, they all trip. Uh, and so you can run up these stairs and these narrow little windows that are there for shooting the arrows out of and you can see this. And <clears throat> that's what I think of when I see this imagery. Because again, what this is, this window that he's describing are these moments in everybody's life that are saturated, as he says, with meaning and whose meaning cannot be put into words. They're precious moments, and when they occur, quoting him again, it is as though on the winding, ill-lit stairway of our life, we suddenly come across a window through which we catch sight of another and brighter world, a world to which we belong, but we cannot enter. And then he concludes, there are many who dismiss this as an unscientific fiction. I am not alone in thinking it real and important. Everyone in all generations, in all peoples, of all time, have felt this. And the Greeks included, who used the word that we use, forgiveness, or that God used in his Bible to mean forgiveness, and they never used it in a religious capacity. Yet, so many, too many, explain away this window of opportunity for whatever reason, they explain it away in different ways, and then they pass by. The saturated moment of meaning is gone and forgotten. What is the problem? The problem is clear in the Word of God that sin is in the way. So the Scriptures use afiemi. Again, the, the word for forgiveness, it means to send off. Uh, and they used, it's used in the wonderful truth in the New Testament that our sin has been sent off. It's been forgiven. It's been sent away. How much of it? All of it. Now, the first use of forgiveness in the Old Testament is used by Moses. Let's go to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 1. So this is after Moses goes up Sinai, Mount Sinai. He receives the law. He comes back down. God tells him to go back down. God says, I hear a, vo a noise in the camp. And Moses goes back down the mountain and sees the Israelites dancing around and worshiping a golden calf. Moses loses it. He loses his temper. He takes the two tablets and he smashes them on the ground. The Ten Commandments are smashed. God says to Moses, you know what? I'll make a great nation out of you. You stand aside and I will judge my wrath upon those people and kill them all. And I will make a nation out of you. Moses says, don't do it. Because your reputation is at stake. If the Egyptians say that you brought all these people out here to die, they'll think you're not a god at all, a god of power. So don't do it. And God listens to Moses' prayer unbelievably. God says, all right, Moses, I won't. So that's where we pick it up here in Exodus 34. God tells Moses to come back up the mountain. Now the Lord says to Moses, said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write in the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present, present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, 
And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Notice there's three words here used in the Hebrew. Forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That covers it all. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children to the third and fourth generations. This is the first time forgiveness is used in the Bible. Right here. After God gives the law. And of course, <clears throat> what, what's the first command in the law? In Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make any idols. What did Israel do? Made a golden calf and worshipped it. They violated the first two laws within dates. This is after they said back in Exodus 19, yeah, we'll do, Exodus 20, they said, we will do all that you command us, God. And sure enough, they have violated it. And so what's going to happen here? And this, this, this is all of history now. That we are sinful creatures. We're born in sin. And none of us. So what did we talk about this on Sunday? We said all of us have more sin than we could know, than we know. So when we're going to want to judge someone and say, you know, you're doing something I would never do, so I'm going to judge you for it. And then God says to us, when we say, God forgive us our sins. Sins, plural. How many sins have I had? How many sins did you have yesterday? Who of us could count them? Of the ones that we know, we had more. So God could say, you know, before you judge those people, what were your sins? And we'd have to, if we're honest with God, we'd have to say, I'm not really sure. What were your sins? I know some, but I don't really know them all. I'm not really all that sure. And then God would say, exactly. You don't even know what you've done. And I have forgiven you. And so this happens with Moses here. How is God going to forgive? So we have two things here. God says, look, the justice of God says, I am the Lord, the Lord God. That's, our, that's where we get Jehovah from, that, that I am the Lord, Yavah, Yahweh. I'm compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. I keep loving kindness for thousands. I forgive iniquities, transgression, and sin. And I said, oh, great. Thanks, God. So we're forgiven of everything. But, oh, I knew it. There's always a but. There's always a yet. Yet. He will not, by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I've forgiven you, but you're not going to get away with anything. Well, we, so we say, well, which is it? And how do we understand this? So notice what Moses does right after this. It helps us answer. Moses 34.8. Moses made haste to bow low towards the earth and worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. And God will do that. So, you know, it's all hunky-dory here, right? You know, God's going to take them to the promised land and everything's going to be fine. But we find out that the people who refuse to believe God are going to die in the desert. So it's both are true that they're forgiven, but yet what they do has consequences. So when we say, Lord, we say, Father, forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, We it's it's not so much the individual sins that we commit that are in view here, it's the fact that we've committed a number of sins that we couldn't possibly count or know, 
And therefore, we're sinners before God forgiven. It is all about our attitude towards our sin. That's what it is. Because we always we say because we're you know logical thinkers and say well if God's forgiven us all our sins why am I asking Him for forgiveness if God has forgiven us all of our sins why am I confessing sin and it's because our attitude towards sin is inversely proportional to our attitude towards God if we don't loathe sin and grieve over sin right that we love we love God because God hates sin. If we hate sin, God hates sin, we love God. We have his mind. If we're of the kind of people who say, you know, uh, I know Jesus died for my sins. I know the blood of Christ has cleansed me. I know that he has gone through hell and back to forgive me, and I thank him for it, but I'm just going to continue to go and live in sin and do whatever heck I want. Why? Because I'm forgiven. And this is absolutely, it's inversely proportional. Loving sin is not a love for God. A desire to live righteous is a love for God because that's what God loves. God loves righteousness. He is righteous. Now, finally I get here. I was supposed to get here a while ago. Uh, The Hebrew word pardon also means to sprinkle. So it's the first time here that the word forgive is used, it's used by Moses here in verse 9. He says, the second half of verse 9, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our, pardon our iniquity and our sin. That word pardon is the matching word to the New Testament forgive. And it's the first time it's used here. But this word, this Hebrew word, you know, Hebrew comes, it's a, a, a Semitic language, there's Aramaic that's very close to it, and we find out that this word also means to sprinkle. And what does that tell you? That forgiveness has one vehicle. And there's no other way to do it. So the Israelites, when they left Egypt, you know, just before this, a few months before this record here in Exodus 34. Uh, The 10th plague where the firstborn would be killed by the angel of death. To whose home did the angel of death pass over? And this is where the Passover comes from. It was those who put the blood. They use a hyssop, hyssop brush and they put blood on the lentils of the door. Lentils? Is that what it is? It's not lentils, is it? That's a food. I think it sounds like that. But top of the door and the two sides. Right, so they, they, there was animal blood, lamb's blood on the door. And if there was blood, the angel passed by. Soon after this, Moses now, he comes down again from the mountain. And he's asked God to forgive these people. So, you think Moses has forgiven them? He most definitely has. I mean, how mad was this guy taking them, going through all that he went through to take them out of Egypt, to come all this way? We come to Mount Sinai, that he's turned the waters sweet. Never mind the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Bitter waters turned sweet, manna from heaven, water from a rock. And then he comes down from the mountain and they're worshiping a golden calf. Right? Oh, and he did expound his, he did express his anger. Now, now that I think about it, he, he had the golden calf ground up into golden dust and he had them all drink it. In modern times, it's called heavy metal poisoning. It's not good for you. Anyway, after this, Moses does forgive them. He comes and here's what he does. In Exodus 24, 6 and 8, the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Moses does a sacrifice According to the law that he just received from God, he sprinkles on the altar, and then Moses took blood and sprinkled it on the people. The blood represents the atonement. The blood represents the pardon. And so, in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it's Hebrews that would take this Levitical system that to most of us in modern world is bizarre, and would take this and show us so clearly, not just in Hebrews, but Hebrews does the best part of it, 
It would show us so clearly how those blood sacrifices were all pointing to the one sacrifice. And this would be called the blood of Christ. So in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, I'll just read it for you. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. To make peace. Now, back to the beginning of the message. This was way more disjointed than I wanted it to be, but it happens. That social scientists, natural scientists, they have the laws of God, which have come from Christianity. They don't acknowledge that, but they have. And they're trying to make sense of things. They're trying to say, you know, why, do man, why does man do what he does? Nurture, nature, DNA, environment. Uh, you know, what is it? And then to get, the, and they have the wrong questions, so they never find any real answers. And what are they trying to create here? I mean, ultimately, it's peace, isn't it? If we say, you know, go back to the Declaration of Independence, if, if these rights are protected by the government, which is what the Declaration says, that government was given to protect these rights that are chosen by the people. That the, the government protects life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness so that when someone tries to rob you of the pursuit of happiness, they're uh, dealt with accordingly. If someone tries to take your life or the life of someone you love, they're dealt with accordingly. If someone tries to take your freedom and enslave you, they're dealt with accordingly. So what's happened is those who want to violate the rights are taken out of society and the rights are protected. That's great. But all of us are still in our sins. So we take God's law to create something that we hope is going to be peace. And we did it here in America. The most prosperous nation. We have a, our constitution has lasted longer than any constitution in all of human history. The longest lasting active constitution by far in all of history. These words on that document have kept us from falling apart. And yet, is it perfect peace here? Uh, we, we know absolutely not. So where is peace? There's only one place, and it's the forgiveness of sins. And with the forgiveness of sins, we have peace with God. And that's what he says here. He made peace through the blood of his cross. And we have peace with God. And if, we have peace, if I have peace with God and you have peace with God, then we have peace with one another. And that's what God brought. Jesus brought forgiveness. And we all have to know, you have your issues and flaws, I have mine. Sometimes I'm going to step on your toes because of my flaws. I don't want to, if, you know, if I'm spiritual enough, I don't want to, but eventually it's going to happen, likely. You're going to step on mine. If, if we don't forgive each other, just like God forgives us, then there isn't going to be any peace amongst us. But God has provided it through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for the forgiveness that has come through the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Moses took your law, prayed for the forgiveness of the people, and then he sprinkled them with the blood of the sacrifice. All of that depicts us being cleansed by the blood of Christ. All the animal sacrifices all throughout the history of the Old Testament did not cleanse. They were rituals that pointed to the reality of the future, and that reality is Christ on the cross. And so, Father, we thank you for him and his forgiveness. Let us leave here today remembering that we have been forgiven of all sin by the blood of Christ. We ask in Christ's name, amen.